0: Bonjour, bienvenue and welcome to another episode of Feminist Fridays, your weekly dose of self-empowerment and equality. This week, we have a guest who I am extremely honoured to have join us. Her name is Suzanne Gervais and she has been awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia for her dedication to storytelling and literacy in Australia and around the world, particularly as an author for children. She's also a first-generation feminist, so we'll be discussing her thoughts on the evolvement of feminism and her role as a feminist too. But before we hear from Suzanne, I'd like to kick off with a kick-ass tune, by Dua Lipa who is of course the infamous English songwriter and singer. This song Don't Start Now from 2019 resonates with me because although in it she's singing about the fact that she's moved on from a relationship I love the lyrics that she's so moved on it's scary and I think that many of us can draw on this self-empowerment regardless of what challenges we've had to move on from. But even though we may tell people in our past who've hurt us in some way to walk away, don't walk away from feminism. Do start showing support for this movement because feminism is for everybody and we are stronger together. (muchas)
1: ¡Qué un gato! Don't show up.
0: Welcome, Suzanne, to Feminist Fridays. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you so much. So before we get into talking about your incredible career and achievements, as well as your thoughts on feminism, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Sydney and your parents were refugees who escaped from war, communism and terrorism In Hungary, and they hoped to be accepted by a democratic country, and Australia offered them a new home. And you said that your father always said, "We are in the best country, and we free are free to work here. And if we make, you know, if we work hard, we make a good life." As someone who is from Australia but who's travelled the world through your career as a writer, like me. I'm curious to know if you agree with your father's statement now. I ask this particularly because of your family family background as refugees and that Australia's current treatment of refugees and asylum seekers through the Pacific solution is considered abysmal. Um, We send them to detention centres and detain them rather than respecting their right to asylum and to enter when they're fleeing persecution. Australia's been damned by numerous organisations like Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, and a lot of my lecturers and colleagues at Po in Paris agree that Australia's current treatment of refugees and asylum seekers is deeply concerning. What are your thoughts on this? Well... The thing
2: is that um, my parents did have to uh, escape and wait in a terrible conditions in a refugee camp before they made their journey to Australia where they had another camp and so on. Mm. I think the difference here, and this is what concerns me, even though they were in a refugee camp and subject to pretty horrendous conditions, they weren't treated as prisoners. They were free to, you know, go and make, do some work. My father, when he was in a camp in um, outside Perth, he, you know, did farm labouring or whatever they did to try and supplement whatever income they had. They were dependent on actually countries like the US who gave them food packages and so on. But in Australia, we're imprisoning them and I, and especially by um, private companies, I was, I'm sort of horrified at Manus Island. I Mm. don't understand why those people are imprisoned and Mm. they have no end date and it's psychologically damaging. I'm particularly concerned about the children and all refugee children are somewhat, they're mad in the sense of negotiating that terrible the terrible experiences they have and one of the things i'm really concerned about is that little beer um Biloela family tamil family from sri lanka where the dad had gone through torture and the community in far north queensland wanted this beautiful young family to stay the parents and the little girls and there was huge outcry in Australia, please let them stay. And we took the position that they had to go. Why? They're a benefit to the country. In fact, I wrote to my MP to, on that very matter. I don't understand the lack of kindness, I guess.
0: You've also talked about the many hardships you faced in your life. Your father sadly died of cancer. Your marriage broke down and you got cancer yourself. But you said that life is about meeting challenges, friendships and being all that you can be. And so you started writing for your children so they'd laugh and feel safe, which is what led to your career as a writer. Can you tell me about how you found the strength to turn your pain into self-empowerment for yourself and for others? Well,
2: let me tell you, I wasn't always strong. There were times I sort of wanted to collapse and hide in a corner. But in the end, you know, I always um, put it in perspective. I didn't go through terrible camps and torture. I didn't have to escape. I have a privilege of being in a democratic country, which gives me the opportunity to move forward. So. That is what drove me. But the main thing, of course, once you have children, honestly, I put my life down for them. And you just gotta go on.
0: Just have to. Hard those sometimes. It is important to remember some of the positive aspects that we can hold on to. I think it's really important that you you flag those. Well, do you know so, what? I don't yeah. believe I
2: don't believe one person
0: in this earth
2: get, gets through scot-free. I really no. do believe that we all face adversity and the real issue is to find the way through it, to find the line. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, in Australia, we have the highest youth male suicide in the world, one of the countries. And do you know what? It's not good enough. It's not good enough. They've lost the light. And, you know, as a writer, I really want to travel with them and say, you can make it through this. It'll be all right. Because young people get so insular. They don't know they're the only people facing adversity. They're not. And so, you know, it's a real privilege to write for these young people so they know everyone has these adversities in varying forms.
0: So you have also been awarded an Order of Australian Medal for your work along with numerous other awards and achievements. That is freaking incredible. Can you tell us about that? Was it ever a goal of yours or...? How did it make you feel and did it open any doors for you and not necessarily career doors, it could be magical doors like the one in Narnia? Well, do you know what? I could never imagine
2: that I would get an Order of Australia. The way it is, my parents came to this country with nothing, not even English, although my parents could speak um, German and Hungarian and my mother spoke French, but no English. And they came here with nothing. And they began their life in Sydney, in one room, where there was my mum and my dad and my brother on a single mattress. And my father said to my mum, I will be back when I have work. And my father was a farmer in Hungary. And my mum, <laughs> my mum was the daughter of a professor of engineering. She played the violin and she lived a very um, sort of beautiful life. Now, they came here and they lived in that one room and they both worked in factories. And they were grateful every single day to be in this country, even though they suffered the trauma of war and loss. But they were grateful because no one would knock on their door and take their children or them to a prison in Russia or whatever torture was then, you know, the way of life. And, you know, when I got that gold invitation, said, Dear Suzanne, we would like to know if you'd like to accept an order of Australia. Please don't tell anyone till it's official. And I thought... I'm not telling anyone it's a lie they're going to write me another letter and say Suzanne, sorry, wrong address and I and look it was an honor beyond an honor for me. I couldn't believe it. I stood in government house, our beautiful government house and when they gave it to me, I accepted it of course for myself but for my amazing parents who had travelled and gone through so much. But for every Australian who has made home here, it was one of the greatest moments of my life and it is is dear to my heart.
0: You know, your words are making me feel like I want to cry, <laughs> honestly. I My dad's also a farmer, by the way. So oh, salt of I, the earth. Uh, yeah, totally. So yeah. I really, yeah. I really respect the work of farmers. I wanted to now talk a little bit about um, writing and your, you know, your career as an author. I don't know the current statistics, but from working in the media and communications industry um, for nearly fifteen years, and through studying how young people consume news and information. I know that the majority of young people today um, scroll through social media and Netflix each day and check their phones first thing in the morning rather than reading books. As a writer myself who admittedly blogs online but also freelance writes for news outlets and still considers herself a writer, Mm -hmm. this, this sort of thing makes me sad. I absolutely, I am such a a big library nerd and bookstore nerd. And I couldn't imagine a world without books. I actually have my three favourite books with me in Paris. And I have the pages of um, my favourite books ripped out and framed on my wall. I love it. it. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and I've also visited Oscar Wilde's grave in Paris, who's one of my favourite authors. So why do you think that writing stories for children and being an author is still important and relevant in this day and age with digital technology moving so rapidly? And how do you ensure that your work as a writer remains relevant, I guess, in terms of the medium that you're using? Well, I think a lot of
2: people mistake story for the actual delivery methodology story is story and the truth is that young people and old people they become engaged in character and you go with that character on the journey that is presented to you. And often people are talking you know because it's digital and there's this platform and that platform that does not stop the power of story. It's like you can use a pencil in the old day you create story. Use a laptop, create story. Use the um, wonderful, wonderful technology that offers you everything from podcasts to, you know, interactive digital opportunities. It's all great. opens communication. It's really an opportunity for young people to connect with the actual creator as well. It's just, I've just been asked, um, actually, I just was asked if I could go on to a Zoom with a school who are all reading my book and they are so excited. They said, would I come on and talk to them and have Q&A? And I said, of course. I mean, that's what the power of all this digital does. So great.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking about the importance of storytelling, I completely agree with you on this. I think telling stories, whether through film, books, music, art, poetry, street art or other creative mediums is so important because it encourages people to not only build knowledge and literacy but to also use their own voice and imagination. You may have noticed from my profile photos that I'm covered in tattoos. Yeah. And I have one of I have one on my forearm in quite large lettering that says imagine. And Einstein famously said that the true sign of intelligence is not knowledge but imagination. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at here is how do you try and encourage people to share their own stories and to speak their truth just like you have? Well, because as a writer, I never And prescriptive. I don't tell
2: anyone what to think or where to go. You jump into a story, you become that character, like in my I Am Jack books. I mean, Jack is so loved. And you go on the journey, you're a mate with Jack, and suddenly your story becomes something you share with him. He becomes the conduit for your ideas and your imagination and it's like a midwife. I feel like a midwife, and often, you know, I speak to hundreds of thousands of young people, and I'm always amazed how they believe I totally know them, and often you'll find at the very end, there'll be some kids, young adult or little kid, whatever, they'll wait for you, and they ask you really deep and meaningful questions, and share their story because they believe I totally know them. Because they've jumped into my characters, they know I am their friend, and their story is worth sharing with me and
0: others. Yeah, it's very powerful. Yeah. So now let's now let's talk a little about feminism. So you've written about the fact. Um, that you identify as a first-generation feminist. Can you tell us about that? When did you identify as a feminist and and why? Okay. Feminist. I didn't actually know I was a feminist, of course.
2: You don't know such things. What happens is I'm in the 70s and feminism is starting to take hold. It's about the first women's refuge. It's about control of your body through contraception. It's about equal rights for education. It's about breaking the mould of a woman has to and a girl has to take on very select careers. Teaching might be nice or secretarial. There's nothing wrong with these professions, but they were the narrow choices. You know, and there were the amazing women, the Gloria Steinem, the Germaine Greers. There were women with big voices, if you like them or don't, but they were challenging the social mores of that time. And the mores were very, very restrictive for women. And one of the huge issues was that a lot of women did not participate in the workforce Um, and as a consequence, they were very dependent on the male provider and that in itself led to a power imbalance and a relationship can't work unless there is some equity. I don't mean men and women are the same, we are not, as we are all individuals as well, but we need to have an equal sense of our own power to have a relationship that works and careers that work and dreams that work. So I was part of that. And definitely, you know, I was in the demonstrations and I was writing and I became what we call a feminist. I didn't know. I just became someone who wanted to be active for human rights. You know, I was there when they made the first first female refuge for women who were battered. You know, you and so participate in that. And by the end, they start to call you a feminist. And I thought, oh, maybe I am. But I didn't know. And what I did know is I totally adored my father. I loved my brother when he wasn't irritating me. I adore my son, my nephew. I'm not against men. I love them. But I am pro-women to be all they can be. And we have to work towards that. We do. And that's how I got involved. It was really at Sydney University, which is what, when I wrote Shadows of Olive Trees, that was that feminism in the 70s which I lived through with all my friends at Sydney
0: University it was a Actually, very yeah I'm a, I'm doing my master's in combination with Sydney University and Sciences Po Paris so ah. I'm, a, I'm a Sydney University uh, person too but I'm oh. clicking I'm clicking my fingers at everything you've just said about feminism and um I think your story is amazing. And, yeah, I think sometimes women don't realise they're feminists. There's sometimes an aha moment. So one thing you've written about is that despite feminism being around for decades now, Mm -hmm. and and I know as a human rights scholar that gender equality was actually first acknowledged in 1948 Mm -hmm. in the International Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah. Um, but yet many women today are afraid to identify as feminists. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think this can be attributed to a, miscon- a misconception about what feminism is. And I can't agree with you more on this point. I just wanted to ask, you know, about backlash. Have you personally experienced any or witnessed it? Or- I've heard- I've certainly wist, witnessed it and i found it really disturbing.
2: My beautiful daughter, who I love, obviously, and she has gone through a lot through a backlash of feminism, that she's called the ice maiden, you're a feminist, somehow it means that you hate men. And girls are under, and young women, women are under a huge pressure to actually be the reverse of feminists, to actually give up their power. And you've got this strange disconnect where women sort of know they want to have their be all they can be and have their power. But at the same time, men, young men, are confused themselves. They're both, you know, terrified at this rise of women's rights but not sure what women are or what they have to be. And there has been a whole disconnect, both with young men and women, over how they're supposed to relate. And, you know, the old, there is this new, you know, saying, you're a feminazi, and that's an attack at these young women. And I think, oh, no, it actually feels even more backward than the '70s in some ways. It's like they're more confused than ever. That um, how are they supposed to behave? You know. But ultimately, it's a human rights thing. Treat each other with respect and res- and acknowledge that all of us have our own journeys, and we should be assisting each other rather than in conflict over. Who has rights, who has not rights?
0: How do you think we can turn this around? Do you think we need more action like the He for She campaign, which involves more men just as much as women?
2: I absolutely admire Emma Watson.
3: Mm.
2: She's the most incredible young woman as an actress, as someone who knows herself. And, you know, she was afraid to be called a feminist because of this yeah. backlash. But she's calling men to come in for this he for she campaign, where men stand up with women for equal rights for both for both genders, male and female, and in between it doesn't matter. I believe no. I believe we need to work through young people to engender change. Part of the reason I'm a writer is that. You know, you can tell people, let's treat everyone equally. And people will say yes, but they don't mean it. They don't know how it goes. You engender cultural change, and it is through story, like, especially with young people, because young people read very differently to adults. In that, if they love a book or a story, They'll read it again and again and again, and they're looking for values of who they will be. Whereas adults, we read a book that's interesting and move along. Young people are different. It's a very powerful place to write. So, you know, I when I was asked to write a book about feminism for the uh, National Museum, for young people who are, you know, eight to ten, it was a very challenging but amazing experience where I'm ex- I'm in getting kids, girls and boys, involved in the journey of feminism, but I had to find out what feminism was. And I researched and I thought it can't be about the pill for children who are 8 to 10. It can't be about burning the bra. They don't even have breasts. What can it be? And I discovered it. It's education it's the fight for education and that opens the doors and i get the kids involved and they will discuss it and they will change meaning their values will ah uh, and then you know when i wrote shadows of olive trees obviously for a young adult stroke adult audience it goes into the greater issues of you know of um, control of body, of education, of all the complex issues that women are involved in. But when you get young people to engage, they will have discussion and their values are still forming. It's not like an older person. You can talk to your, you know, blue in the face and they won't change. But young people, they're different, they're the future. And we need to reach them early, not tell them what to think, but open through character ways for them to question and make their own decisions.
0: So another thing I just wanted to talk about, which I guess, you know, is something I feel a little apprehensive about, is the fact that many people describe feminism as happening in waves. And whilst I, I know that academically, you know, This is certainly, there's a lot of writing and research around this and I can't provide an academic critique. I haven't done that much research on that particular aspect yet. I I don't know that describing feminism in different ways is helpful because it kind of potentially can be more divisive and inclusive. How do you feel about this? Well, look,
2: I just think the term waves is used as a form of classification to understand what's happening in the 60s, 70s or 80s, 90s. To me, it is purely a term. What I do think the waves refer to is how sometimes there is more energy into it and sometimes there's less. And it's often linked to historical historical events. So, for example, now with the um, terrible um, sexual abuse um, cases with um, uh, Bill Crosby and Harvey Weinstein and all that type of um, sexual abuse situation, it's led to a greater interest. And then they call it a wave. A wave, I do not know if it's a wave or not, but what I do know, I think, is that the waves refer to different peaks in interest and activity, really. But ultimately, we hope it's two steps forward, one step backward, but continuing to move forward to equality and social justice.
0: Thank you. You know, I think that gives me a little bit more of a perspective. And, you know, I agree with you in terms of, there have been different peaks and different types of energy in feminism. So I just, I just hope that, you know, people of all generations can identify with feminism as being about inclusive and for everyone, rather than dividing, you know, different feminists into different categories. So well, I think the division between categories is ridiculous.
2: We've all got one goal, one yeah. goal, and yeah. that's it. And one of the things I think is so important about women is this. And I'm very involved as an ambassador for Room to Read and lots of uh, various literacy char- charities, not only is in Australia but internationally, especially in developing countries. And one of the areas I've discovered is proactive and affirmative action for girl education leads Mm. to education of the boys and the girls. So Mm. in Room to Read, which, as I said, I'm a writer ambassador, what's happening is we have this affirmative action for the girls because when they become mothers and have families, they will educate the girls and boys. And it's that type of... um, Action that happens from female p- empowerment through education, but uh, I certainly um, know that women have an enormous um, role in education of the new of the new generation.
0: So you said that you, the next step for feminism is we, as you, you've already alluded to, is that young people engage with it. Um yep. and that providing facts and information is interesting but doesn't, you know, often engage emotionally. No. And, you know, it's more important that um we reach young people as they face challenges and search for their identity, love, meaning, and within the cultural and societal expectations. Yeah. Beyond, beyond storytelling how do you think that societal change could take place around feminism and equality? Well, the thing
2: is that we have enormous amounts of money um, pouring into, or never enough, but doesn't matter, enormous amounts of money pouring into assistance for women and families in trouble, men in trouble too. The problem is when you solve a problem, you think you're solving a problem. When you've got someone who is in the middle of domestic violence, you've already lost. You've lost. The issue it's over. You may make a band-aid here, a band-aid there, but not only are you you may stop that, say, domestic violence. For that moment, the trouble is the children have seen that. So there, we've got the next generation nicely breeding in in this sort of inequitable and unacceptable behaviour. So how do we deal with it? It is through education, but not prescriptive education. It just does not work. For example, if you want to tell me what to think. I'll listen because I'm polite, but I'll think what I think. How do you move it's all about value change, not about dominating. and I'll give an example. when I first when I was growing up in Australia, we'd drive in the car and you'd see people litter all over the place. It was disgusting. Through thirty years of education, not through prescriptive education showing an example australia is a clean country we don't litter overall we res- we have a change value system and if you see people littering and throwing things there is great disapproval we don't like it so that's how we change with regard to equity feminism is all through very slow educational change Story is the most powerful way once you emotionally engage young people develop empathy then you're on the path then you're on the path and it's all about developing leaders so say for example you know you do your stories and they talk about it and you engender discussion not everyone will engage in um, belief in feminism and equity and human rights. But there will be enough leaders who listen, who empathise, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. become our future leaders. They become the Mahalis, you know, who won the Nobel Peace Prize.
3: So the thing yeah.
2: is, yeah, and the thing is, that's the only way. That's my view. That's the only way. No more... And, you know, yes, of course, we must resolve as best as we can inequities, but that's not going to solve it. Grassroots, education, empathy, engagement, and things like, as I said, I'm involved in a number of literacy charities and so on. There's nothing more beautiful than when one school or group of kids are um, corresponding, obviously, digitally with another in a say an underprivileged com- country and they become friends suddenly it's broken down you don't notice race and class and so on it's familiarity empathy it's engaging with people
0: i wanted to ask you i guess a, a final question what are you working on now where can our listeners find you your stories and you know follow your inspiring work? Well, I would love to I would love them to
2: jump onto my um social media. I'm obviously under sjervey that's my name, .com. And mm-hmm. uh, my new book, my new book is called um, Heroes of the Secret Underground which will be coming out with HarperCollins. It's so beautiful. HarperCollins on the first of april 2021 and that book only took out my heart and soul it's part autobiography part history part philosophy and part fantasy and it's really and it really it has taken the deepest part of me it includes a lot of einstein and what it is, it's about... Oh, I love that. You will love it. It's filled with the philosophy of life.
3: Oh and for goodness. young
2: people. yeah, for young people, but for old as well. And what it is, it's three young people growing up in historic Sydney with Hungarian parents who were refugees. And it's about secrets and mysteries, which they uncover as they climb higher and higher to the top of the Grand Boutique Hotel where they live. And once they reach the top, they time-slip to Budapest, 1944, where they Ooh. meet their grandparents as children and uncover the secrets of the past to bring you... hope to the future.
0: You might just ask, who your family from Budapest? Or... Yeah,
2: well, my mother was from Budapest and my father was from the country on the border of Romania and Hungary. Uh... My mum was from Budapest, actually with the um, Hungarian symphony and, you know, all
0: that type of glamorous sort of different th- life. I've been to Budapest and it is a, the most beautiful city. I particularly, I didn't spend long there, but I particularly enjoyed all of the beautiful, not only the river and the historic mm. buildings, but the bathhouses. I loved the the bathhouses. Yes. They were amazing. The spa. So,
2: Oh, my God, the spas, they're very nice.
0: Oh, my God, oh, my God. Well, Suzanne, I can't wait to read your next book. I hope you do read it. You
2: will love it. It's really, it has, I put everything I had into it. Because you know what? One thing I know about readers, especially young readers, they actually know a liar, and I choose not to lie to them. Because when they read my book, I want them to shut the book and the characters and the ideas to go with them into their lives. And that's
0: my goal. Well, thank you, Suzanne. I will read that book. I can't (laughs) wait to come out. Will it be available in all good bookstores?
2: It will be available in all good bookstores. HarperCollins Australia will be putting it out, but it usually goes on. Well, they often sell it to HarperCollins360, which is, you know, international. But we'll see how it goes. Yeah. But meanwhile, I have a scheduled date and hopefully it will make a difference in this very crazy world we live in at the moment.
0: Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. I cannot I can't thank you enough for sharing everything that you've said. I think your work is incredibly inspiring and important. Um, and just keep on keeping on because you are kick-ass woman. (laughs) I'm kick-ass. I quite like that. Well, that is a wrap for Feminist Fridays for another week. Thank you to Suzanne once again for joining us. What an honour. I'm going to leave you with a new track by Aluna of Aluna George called Body Pump which has just been released and is her first solo single from a forthcoming album. I love this song and the lyrics, I'm trying to be different, don't make me think about it. I'm trying to be different, don't make me feel ashamed. Because I couldn't agree with her more. Be as different as you like, my friends, and get your body pumping this weekend. Even if it's in the confinement of your bedroom, like me. Au revoir and I hope to catch you for next week's feminist Friday. Have a bon weekend.
4: I'm bad up on the weekend. And I'm sitting up on my own. I've been hiding for you too long now, so you don't know.